1: Hello, and do come in. This is Out to Lunch, the interview podcast that feeds its guests properly. Today, I am joined by an internationally renowned film director. Her movies include the groundbreaking Bend It Like Beckham, Blinded by the Light, and It's a Wonderful Afterlife. We talk about making pate sandwiches for one of the biggest bands in the world, meeting Bruce Springsteen, and why it's more important now than ever to keep making movies. It's the film director, producer, and screenwriter, Gurinder Chadha.
0: He walked over. I crossed the carpet with my camera, carried on filming, but was so excited that most of what I filmed is Bruce Bruce's chest. chest. Yeah, Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's, it's hilarious. Normally at this point on Out to Lunch, I tell you that the guests had certain dietries and then I went and chose a restaurant that fitted them. But with gurunda chado it's nothing like that at all. The brilliant film director, she chose Hakasan She loves Hakkasan. This is where she wanted to come to lunch. And who am I to stand in her way? Uh, now, uh, people who've listened to a lot of this uh, podcast may remember that back at the beginning of lockdown in 2020, I interviewed the other film director we've had on this show Edgar Wright over a takeaway from Hakasan. well this time we are inside the building itself in Mayfair on Bruton Street with lots of lovely Chinese food shall we go inside hello 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 hi
0: Jay how
1: lovely to see you nice to
0: see you
1: before we get going Food features yes. significantly in your films. Definitely. I mean, in my life. In your life. Yeah. I mean, starting Bhaji on the Beach, it's the food is in the title <laughs> yes. and in a, it's a wonderful afterlife. Most of the plot turns on food it, at some point. Was yes. food a major thing in your family?
0: Absolutely. If you're Indian and you have a typical Indian mum, Punjabi mum, as mine was, food is the vessel through which you show your love and affection. to your family and particularly your kids. By making these lavish meals, you know, that we know now take ages, but somehow mum used to do it, holding down sometimes two jobs, you know, but still always make sure that there was delicious, not just one, but two or three dishes on the table. It was her way of caring and nurturing for her children.
1: But am I right that you did not necessarily take Kindly to the notion that you should simply follow her in there.
0: I was the bane of her life (laughs) (laughs) because I decided it was terribly sexist. You know, whenever there were guests, there was like huge sort of numbers of Indian women all in the kitchen cooking together, you know, so the men could all come and sit and enjoy the food first. And then if there was space, the women would sit. And I just found that abhorrent and I just refused. And also for me, growing up as a girl, not cooking was a way for me to to, to rebel.
1: Well, look, you're not cooking today. Uh, <gasps> do you like your Chinese food?
0: I love my Chinese food.
1: Uh, well, this is Sabrina, who's uh, looking after us today. Hello. And I can make some suggestions. It depends what you're really into.
0: Well, I have my favourites at Hakkasan, of course. Oh, right, OK. You yes. tell me what we're having That's then. why I chose this restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> right, fair enough.
1: I'll shut up then.
0: Well, um, I do like the Rolls Royce of sesame prawn toast, which you get here. I do think that their crispy duck salad is also very good. Okay.
1: I love char siu.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. I think Soft Soft shell, shell, few mains. I might go a bit lowbrow here.
1: The sweet and sour pork, then? Yes,
0: exactly. (laughs) Because, again, it's the Rolls Royce of sweet and sour. I think this tofu aubergine dish is very nice, too.
1: Brilliant. Black truffle roasted duck.
0: Oh, yeah, that sounds good, too.
1: I can't... Fail but notice you've got a Springsteen t shirt on. <laughs> yes. When I watched, finally caught up with Blinded by the Light, your yeah. twenty nineteen movie based on Safraz Manzur's book about growing up as a Springsteen obsessed teen in Luton. Yeah. One of the thoughts that occurred to me was how how did she ever get this made?
0: So Safraz and I had connected because we were both big Springsteen fans.
1: He, his book was called Welcome to Bury Park. A, a
0: greetings from Berry Park. Greetings from Bury Park. But I knew him from before that. And I knew him because he'd written an article in The Guardian about Springsteen coming to London. This is way back. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, there's another Asian person like Springsteen. How unusual. And so we connected and spent you know, a good few hours chatting about different you know, albums that we liked and tracks. I had made Bendit Like Beckham by this point. And when I read his memoir, I said, okay, there's a good movie in here. And then we were very lucky. I got invited to the premiere of Springsteen's uh, documentary at the NFT he was coming to London. So I took Safraz as my plus one and we stood at the red carpet hoping to noble Bruce just to say, hi, you know, we want Does, to do this. so
1: wanted to give him a copy of the book, Is well, that right? so
0: I didn't know, but Safraz had a copy of the book in his back pocket. <laughs> it's what you do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I didn't realise he did that, but that was a great thing. Anyway, we both stood on either side of the red carpet thinking that as he walked past, you know, we could take pictures of each other with Springsteen. That was our first intention, was just to be in a photo with him. And then we thought once we're inside and he's inside, we'll be able to, you know, novel him. What ended up happening was amazing, and it's on camera. He basically saw Safraz and had recognised him because he's the only Pakistani with an Afro who was at Springsteen gigs at the front. And he walked over. I crossed the carpet with my camera, carried on filming, but was so excited that most of what I filmed is Bruce Springsteen's chest. chest. Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's hilarious.
0: And then Springsteen said, hey man, I read your book. It's beautiful. And I just jumped in and said, that's so great. We want to make a film about it. I made this film, Bender Like Beckham, which I heard your kids love. And then he looked at us both and went, sounds good. Talk to John. And then behind him was John Landau, who took our details. He's, the, he's
1: his manager, isn't he? His manager. Oh, yeah.
0: John said, speak to Tracy, and Tracy is also one of his managers. And that's what we did. Then I kept in touch with Tracy over the whole period of writing. And the mantra for Safraz and I became, we can only write a script that Bruce likes. We're not writing it for the BFI. We're not writing it for anyone else. It's what would Bruce like? That really became the germ of the, of the script. Tracy kept in touch. And I kept in touch with her, kept feeding her bits and she kept saying, well, he'll like this, he won't like this. So the idea of Bruce actually being in the film was a big no-no because he just is well, not we like be that. Well, it should be clear, bit.
1: he hadn't given the rights to any, any of his songs for film. It wasn't no. saying he did, really, was it?
0: He did. He'd done Philadelphia. Yeah. And he'd given a song, I think, to The Wrestler... Written a song for the wrestler because it was set in New Jersey. But this had
1: 19 Bruce Springsteen yes. songs and lyrics quoted by the star. It is fantastic. I
0: mean. It was definitely uh, made the whole of Hollywood and the music industry stand up because they were like, Jesus, what has this woman done to get all these rights? The terrifying thing for me was once, when, once, he'd, once he'd given us the permission, he, he basically said, give her what she wants. What was terrifying was when I had to go and show the film to Bruce. And I went to New York, sat in a dark room with him and five of his team. And I was very, very nervous. And as this film played, I tried to gauge his face. I sat sort of behind him to the side. Initially, I think he was just taken aback. And then he started laughing. And he laughed most at the self-deprecating gags, you know, to do with Bruce. There was a moment where, The fan says to his friend, who's very suspicious of Bruce's music, Jarvid says, One day, man, we're going to walk in the sun. Until then, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. And his friend goes, did you write that? I told you (laughs) lyrics were rubbish. And I wrote that. And I remember thinking, he's either going to hate it or love it. And actually, that was the thing. He, He loved that and he really laughed his head off. But then the film gets very, very emotional about a son and a father. Right. And of course, Bruce has his own uh, issues with his father. And that story totally captivated him, how that was told. And, and when I went to turn the lights on, I saw him through the corner of my eye. He got up and I thought, oh, my God, he's going to leave. Yeah. But he actually came over to me and gave me a huge hug and a big kiss on the cheek and whispered in my ear, thank you for looking after me so beautifully. And uh, it was probably one of the best moments of my life. Oh,
1: it's fantastic. It's a fantastic film. So if you haven't seen it, you have to see Blinded by the Light. It's mm. gorgeous. Oh, this is fantastic. The prawn toast has turned up. And it, it has to be said, if you haven't seen Hakkasan's prawn toast before, it's nothing like the prawn toast you might be used to, is it?
0: No, it's a huge tiger prawn, right? Yeah. Sitting on a little uh, piece of fried bread covered in sesame seeds, um, along with some seaweed there and uh, very succulent looking.
1: You were born in Kenya as part of that large Asian Punjabi
0: yes. community
1: and then left after Kenyan independence and Africanisation was happening. Yes. And grew up in Southall. I'm doing it so you don't have to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Southall became very politicised. There were the riots in the late 70s. Yeah. Um, the Southall Black Sisters yeah. and all of that. Were you involved in any of that?
0: My first sort of job, if you like, was working for something called Shakti magazine, which means power. And uh, it was for the National Association of Asian Youth. So Southall became, you know, a place where British Asian youth were finding themselves and finding their voices and their identities. And it all took on, you know, very uh, important, Guys, when the National Front decided they wanted to march through Southall and hold a Mm. public meeting in Southall Town Hall and the community (laughs) up till that point had been sort of put up and shut up but young people were were, you know bound to be respectful to the parents but at the same time we were also struggling to figure out where we where we belonged. Which
1: I mean it's statement obvious has been a, a theme that has run like the lettering through a stick of rock in a number of your movies
0: yes well that's why do you become a filmmaker you become a filmmaker because you have something to say so actually what I wanted to do and even with Bender like Beckham you know that film really was a cry for acknowledging the positive side of diversity and multiculturalism in Britain and I think that film did a lot to change race relations in Britain because it was seen as a great british success you know and and it was affectionate about the community and it took the community with it as opposed to previous films that I felt had been um, quite divisive in terms of the community, the Asian community and the white community. Film,
1: the actual, you know, business of cinema, was that a big thing? Or was it something you gravitated towards as you realised that was the way you could tell the stories that you wanted to?
0: I became a journalist because I thought that was the way to change the world. Before that, let me tell you about the university. UEO. Food. UEO, Norwich. I left home learning how to cook three dishes. But when I got to university, I found myself becoming very student-y. So it was basically jacket potatoes. And then at the bottom of my road was a Chinese takeaway called Hong Kong Garden. But I used to look at it and sort of love the smells, but I just didn't know anything about Chinese food because you know, Indian people didn't used to go out to restaurants you know, when I was growing up. So one day I braved you know, this
1: new world. You and stepped I over the threshold.
0: Stepped over, I went in, I looked at this huge menu. I didn't know what any dish was. And then I came out with <laughs> chicken, curry and rice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> look, if it's on the menu, it's fair game, isn't it? And here's the uh, char siu, which is a oh, thing that I'm an gosh. absolute sucker for.
0: Really? Mm. And it's got lovely pork uh, crackling on top, <laughs>
1: look. Yeah. There is another thing that has to be said about UEA, which is at that point, I don't know what the situation is now, it was a, a massively important spot on the concert yes, uh, circuit. Yes, absolutely. Were you part of that? Did you go Definitely. a Definitely.
0: Music, as you know, is a huge part of my life. Well, exactly. <laughs> and I was very, very involved in anything to do with the gig. So I was on the social committee, which, if you were a boy, meant you were kind of a roadie.
1: Yeah. If
0: you were a girl, it meant you made the sandwiches for the bands. And so I got to meet quite a lot of bands like that, met the specials, you know? Yeah. Um, And then one band in particular I met, they were very new, young lads, and they were very kind. And I'd made pate sandwiches. and I offered it to the band and they were like, no, we're all right, thank you. And afterwards, they said, I was there clearing up after the gig, and they said, can we give you a lift home? And I said, sure, sure. So I got in this van with four of them, and they dropped me off. And I felt obliged to say, would you like to come in for a coffee? And I said, absolutely. And they came in and then I went to go make tea. Anyway, the milk was off.
1: Yeah. Couldn't make the coffee. No.
0: In the end, they left. But they came back a year later Mm -hmm. and they were huge now. And they actually asked for me on the stove and said, am I still here? Because I'd looked after them so well. And I was like mortified because I thought everyone would think I'm a groupie. And and it was uh, Bono and you
1: too. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good story.
0: Once I left um, university and did my journalism course and became a researcher, one of my jobs was uh, researching on the media show. When Mural Gray used to present it. And I remember going on a shoot and it was lunchtime. and, And the director, she chose a Thai restaurant in Soho called Bin Thai. Do you remember that? I do vaguely, yeah. And I'd never had Thai food before. And I, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven.
1: Well, the interesting thing is, the media show, at that point when Channel 4 launched in 82, mm. um, what year were you working on the media show? Probably. Couldn't have been long after that.
0: Actually, you know, what was it was 86.
1: I mean, you, you were in the, exactly the right place for any young media want, <clears throat> wannabe person and it was all very hip and cool and marvelous very
0: and i and i just missed a whole bit which was my time in birmingham before being cool i was in birmingham on local radio after my shift in the newsroom it was you know customary that you went to the bbc bar at pebble mill which was subsidized everyone sort of bought rounds 11 o'clock at night you'd get in a taxi to ladypool road where all the Vaulty houses were so we were sitting there sort of half drunk Eating like rich curry and naan, you know, 11 midnight, rolling home to bed, getting up again at seven, doing it all over again.
1: You, that makes you sound actually quite nostalgic for it. I can't do it
0: now, I get heartburned.
1: Uh, well, no, no neither, neither <laughs> I. But I always say that because in, in the telling of your story sometime, it's, it, it's always sounded like those were the bits where you were having fun mm-hmm. without necessarily feeling you were doing the thing you needed to be doing.
0: I've always felt that people look at me and think one thing not realising that actually, you know, do, I can do... I'm a lot bigger than what you think I am. Then
1: I have to ask you, do you does a part of Gurinder Shadow in 2021 still think that?
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, I go up for films all the time, you know, and people...
1: Well, as director for Hire?
0: Very big films. Yeah. You know, I'll get to number two and then it will generally go to the white bloke (laughs) because he's just a safer bet
1: is that classic misogyny and racism kicking in is any of it changing
0: I think it is that but I do watch films and think I could have done a better job with that if they'd given it to me but they just think I'm good with Indian things or I'm good with kids or women or you know what I mean like you can tell that from the scripts that i get sent you know But it is changing now, you know, over lockdown, quite a lot of things happened and I am on the precipice of um, negotiating two quite big uh, studio movies that will be quite big action CGI movies that have come from me just pushing and pushing and pushing.
1: I can do that. Yeah. Give me the chance. I think we'll serve ourselves Thank you so much Sabrina Mm. That's the duck salad which has just been sort of put together for us You seem to cross over via a directing course
0: When I was a journalist I had a lovely friend I still have a lovely friend Called Kate Webb So what happened with me Was the whole Bhangra music scene Had exploded in Britain Which was this sort of fusion of Basically Punjabi dance music Mixed with British pop music. Anyway, I wanted to record this moment and I told Kate and I said, I want to make a pop promo with one of these bands. And we started talking about it and she said, well, why a pop promo? Why don't you do more? She said, you should make a film. And I said, I can't make a film. I've never been to film school. And she said, do you think people who go to film school know what they're doing? <laughs> and it was Kate who helped me apply to the British Film Institute in their new director scheme. And pushed me and said, just do it. And at the film school, I made a short about Asians and humour.
1: I set up like a comedy
0: club. And two of my people, one was Kulvindagir and the other was Mira sial who were in my film.
1: Uh, Mira Sial and Saji Basker and um, there are others whose names... Yeah, that.
0: Kulvindagir
1: and Nina Wadia uh, uh, Launched uh, a very influential comedy on BBC Two called Goodness Gracious Me. Yeah, You get to a point where listening to these names and wondering whether for the visibility there is, mm. how small the the British Asian pool of recognized talent, of talent that's allowed its voice
0: mm. still is. Very small. And the problem is, is to make movies you need names. You need names to sell it and stars, but how are you going to create these names if you don't give people breaks,
1: you know? Well, I was, I was quite struck. Uh, one of the amazing things about Bend It Like Beckham, mm. in retrospect, is the names that were in that film. Yeah. So, obviously, Kira Knightley yeah. was there, um, as well as Paminda Nagra and Archie Punjabi. Yeah. Well, here's the thing and I think you probably know where I'm going with this, Keira Knightley, in, international star. Yes. And both Archie Punjabi and Baminda uh, Nagra basically went to the US to mm. make their mm. names. Mm. And we've we've had, you know, I've had guests on this podcast before who have done very well in Britain but not well enough and have, you know, like London yeah. Hughes, great comedian, black British comedian who's now in LA because she said it just wasn't working. Yeah. Is that still the case, do you think, yeah. for... yeah. You know, if you're brown, it's not going to happen.
0: Sadly, yeah. I mean, there's a much bigger volume of work in the States. Sure. So it's a bigger pool. And which is sad, but British creative industries need to take note of that. I mean, I could have done it.
1: Well, you could have just left altogether and gone <laughs> yeah, to the States. Yeah,
0: easily. I would have been making much bigger films. But I would have been making films that I don't necessarily care about. The one thing I can say is that every single film I've made... No one else in the world would make a film like that. And that ultimately is, I think, what directors or artists certainly you know, want, is the fact that they have a unique voice and a unique contribution, and people recognise that it's from their perspective.
1: Right, we have main courses arriving. Oh
0: my God, can you smell the truffle?
1: I can. So strong, wow. That's the duck. That is the duck. Wow. Look at the skin on that, it's like paper. Gosh, gorgeous. The the stuff that's going on now, and I'm Mm. not expecting to tell you what it is, but you said they're big action movies Mm. with a bit of CGI. Might there be a car chase? Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd love to know what it is about directors wanting to direct car chases.
0: They're both period, so it's more horse and cart race. Okay, uh, let's not go any further.
1: (laughs) When Bend It Like Beckham became... And let's be clear, not just commercial success, critical success, people love that film. Mm. Uh, you described it as the good fortune of putting Beckham's name in the title before he was what he became.
0: I mean, people knew who he was in Britain, obviously. He used to play for Man U. But when the film came out in America, Fox wanted wanted to change the title because no-one knew who David Beckham was. What what were they going to call it? You know, soccer fun and things like that. And (laughs) we were like, oh, God, no, we can't do that. And we literally couldn't think of another title, which is why we stayed with, with uh, Bendit. It's good karma. He said he would do anything to support women's football. Well, because at that time, if you remember, it was a very aggressive thing yeah. to go to a football match. Um, there was a lot of abuse and he would get abused, because you know, he was advertising men's underwear. And, and so supporting this little film about an Indian girl who wants to play football, you know, for him, it was a good thing. By the time the film came out, he was like superstar Beckham. And I remember before the film coming out, I was in Norwich and it was the World Cup qualifying match, England, Greece. And Beckham, almost from the you know, midline, he bent a ball all the way into the net.
1: You beauty.
0: Yeah, and I was like, oh my god. We hadn't released the film at that point. But he was like, he, everyone was like, Beckham, Beckham, Beckham.
1: But what was strange to me, Vice Roy's House,
0: mm.
1: obviously there was Gandhi. And if you put it in its time and its context, it is an extraordinary film mm. to get made. How did you feel about that film when you saw it?
0: I loved it when I saw
1: it. Ah, I and like, what do you think now?
0: I'm a big fan of Attenborough. You know, I actually really loved Cry Freedom as well. Mm. You know, I know a lot of people were critical of it, but I thought.
1: But what, because it was the Donald Wood story rather than the Steve Biko story?
0: Yeah. But I thought that's how you make Hollywood films about apartheid. Attenborough made a big kind of film that a lot of the world saw. And I think that um, Gandhi did that. What I tried to do with Viceroy's House was take that template, uh, but make it
1: from a British Asian perspective. Do you want to explain what Viceroy's House is about?
0: Viceroy's House is the last days of British rule in India and follows the Mount Batons in their big home, which is Viceroy's house. But it's the microcosm of India told through Viceroy's house. So the servants are followed as well as the Mount Batons upstairs. So it's an upstairs downstairs story. And what goes on in the house is being reflected with what's going on outside. And my family were very much caught up in the partition of India. And so I knew at some point in my life I had to make a film about partition. And I chose to do it through Viceroy's house because I didn't want to make a film that showed Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims killing each other, which did happen, you know, in a big way. Many, many
1: people died. Many people died.
0: What I was more interested in was looking at the agendas and what was going on behind the scenes. But halfway through the process, I was at a charity function in Buckingham Palace, and I met Prince Charles and said, oh, I'm making a film about your uncle. And he immediately got very interested and said, what is it? What are you doing? And I told him that I was basing it on um, Freedom at Midnight book, which I had the rights to. And he said, no, 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 no. You need to get this other book, Shadow of the Great Game. And he said, that will show you how my uncle was totally set up by the establishment. And I was like, huh? Here's Prince Charles, future king in this palace. Being quite political. Being quite political. But when he says establishment, who is he talking about? (laughs) Because looking at him, he's the establishment, you know. So I thought that was interesting that he had a different word for who he thought the establishment was. Anyway, I went to five shops, finally found the book, started reading it. And in it was, uh, and according to the author, you know, he'd found this evidence, which were secret documents that were in the British Library that pointed to the fact that rather than partition being a reaction to what was going on in terms of communal riots, you know, yeah. once India was independence was announced, it was actually British policy and Churchill's policy in particular to create problems between the Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs so that partition would happen. And the theory in the book and in the documents which I've seen, they're in the British Library is that the main concern for britain and america at that time post-war just after the war 1945 their main concern was that in giving india up britain and america would no longer have a base in asia and asia would be left open for russia to take over and nehru and india were already very close to russia you know so america really feared. It was the beginning of the Cold War. America really feared that Russia would take over all of Asia. So
1: setting up Pakistan was the creation of a client state?
0: Yes. A lot of Pakistanis don't like that argument, obviously, because people feel like Pakistan was created by the will of the people. And I think to some degree it was, you know, because otherwise, you know, if everyone had said, no, we don't want it, it wasn't going to happen. But I think the idea that to callously carve up a country to create another country, without proper care and concern of what was going to happen to the people, you know that I think was the issue for me, and yeah. the, and, and so many people whose families lost lives.
1: There's your sweet and sour. Oh no, that's oh, the, aubergine. the aubergine. That's the aubergine. Which I is
0: love aubergine not- done Asian style. And there's a great Indian dish called bharta,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is smashed aubergine. But I think the way Asians make aubergine, oh, it's made for it.
1: So I understand you're working on an animation project. I'm not expecting you to tell me who it is, but I am intrigued because there's quite a lot of footage of you online directing and Mm. your directing style on set is kinetic. Mm. You're here, you're there, you're placing people on stairs, you're filling the shots. you're Mm. pulling back, Mm. whereas you can't do that on set with animation in the same way, can you? Oh, I think it's
0: great on animation, because you can make it up as you go along. With film, you have to work with what you've got to make it work and improve it on the day. You know, because you can't call other actors, you can't build other sets. But with animation, you have the opportunity to push and push and push a scene till you've got it the best you can, because it's drawings,
1: you know, it's computers. Right now, mm. count them off. How many projects have you got buzzing around?
0: One, two, three projects, four projects where the scripts are good and ready to go. Which depends now on casting and finance. And another four, I would say, where the scripts are being written.
1: So just so eight. eight. And then there's TV stuff as well We're talking We're we're sort of We know where we are We're coming out of lockdown Mm. Are you as excited About being a filmmaker As as you were? Absolutely I mean I don't have The
0: luxury to stop (laughs) Basically I have to keep doing it You know Because there's more Shitty stuff out there In the world Than there is good And so what I try And do is balance
1: it out Grinda Chadwick Thank you so much For coming out to lunch me And for ordering it as well Because you know Takes it off me doing that. <laughs> um, and choosing Hakasan as well, because I bloody love this restaurant. How's, how's the food been? It's been fantastic.
0: <laughs> I love my Chinese food more than my Indian food, actually. Really? Yeah. Like everyone, you know, I think I've got a lot more healthier in my palate. And I think ultimately it's not so much about giving up foods you don't like, but just making sure the foods you like are well-made good ingredients and, you know, proper grub. That's what we're eating now.
1: Yeah, we're eating roast duck with truffles and it doesn't get more proper than (laughs) that, does it? (laughs) And oversheets. And And oversheets. Thank you for coming out to lunch with me. It's been fab. Thank you. Ever the director, uh, Gorinda took the lead on the food ordering, which meant I could just sit back, chat, eat and enjoy. That's total heaven as far as I'm concerned. Though I think we may have been A bit over-enthusiastic with our ordering, but by God, it was good. Um, We did love our food at Hakasan Mayfair. We feasted on sesame prawn toast, crispy duck salad, soft-shell crab, chow siu tofu, aubergine, black truffle roasted duck, and sweet and sour pork. No room for dessert. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Now then, why don't you feast on us? There are loads more fabulous episodes where that one came from, and we would love your support. It's really easy. Just rate us. Give us five stars. Why not? Comment, say how fabulous we are, tell all your friends, and subscribe to get new episodes out to lunch is a something else and jay rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay rayner and robert rickenberg the recording engineer was paul progdon and the mix engineer was gulliver tickle jemima rathbone is assistant producer the producer is selena ream and the executive producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman next time it's the legendary actor most recently known for game of thrones the crown and mank and a whole lot more it's charles dance F. Murray Abraham and I were in the makeup trailer one day, talking rather pompously about European art films or something, <laughs> you know. And Arnold came in and overheard this conversation. He said, You know, you know, you need the money you make in my movies to make your art films. And he said, Yes, you're absolutely right, Arnold. And he said, I make films for the polyester people. <laughs>